invite you to take out your copy of the fourth gospel, John's gospel, the spiritual gospel as it was known back in his day as he's writing this much later than the synoptics, the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which complain, uh, contain more of a sort of a biography, more of a, the detail of what went on back then. Uh, John's account is a little different, yet perfectly complementary to the things that they're saying. And the truths that John discloses are simply to focus on Jesus Christ, that people would know who Jesus is, that they would understand who he is, and that in knowing and seeing who he is, that they would believe and that they would receive him as their Messiah. And it's amazing as we've gone through this gospel and we've gone through the first chapters, now the first chapters one through six, and we're turning the corner now into chapter seven. And we're looking at verses one through 13 to begin with. This is um, really just another testimony of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty in not only the timing, but the perfect obedience of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we're looking at 1 through 13 this morning, and let's read that together first of all. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Father, we thank you for these words. And we ask, O Lord, that you give us further understanding. We have to understand them, O Lord, considering things like grammar, considering things like history, This is a real and true historical event as we looked at the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children. And then we saw Jesus depart from that. And now, O Lord, we turn the corner and we see uh, this testimony of your timing. And And it's quite remarkable. It's striking to us, O Lord, that he will not go with his brothers, that he is he is going to go and in his time, your time, that you had given him to go. And he won't go publicly, he'll go privately. So we see some what look like uh, things that are contrary to what his brothers thought were would be the best thing for him. And we need help in understanding these things, especially their relevance to our lives today as believers. So Lord, we 
pray. I pray, O Lord, that you would be with me as these words are expounded, that the truths of these words are exposed to the hearts of those assembled here and those who listen online. I pray, O Lord, that you would speak now to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So what chapter 7 and 8 taken together pretty much reveal is an escalating, a clear escalating of the hatred that they have for Jesus Christ. It's a mounting hatred because of the things that he's saying. We saw as he fed the 5,000 men, and there were some women and children there, so it's into the five-figure thousands of people that were there, um, and him spending that time there with them. There's really two categories of people in the world at any time. It is those who understand the teachings of Jesus to be clear that if you wanted alliterated would be that you would accept him, that you would appropriate him, and that you would assimilate him. Those three things are crucial to understand. Accepting him means to take him for who he is. It's a spiritual matter. It's accepting the claims. They rejected them. They rejected the claims of Jesus, and therefore there was no appropriation, which would really be um, a, to appropriate something means to take exclusive possession of. You can see this is sequential. So first, the acceptance of the claims. So they're hearing teaching taught, and it's something that there is resonating with them, that they're accepting. It's hard to hear, as they said. These sayings are hard to hear, very hard to hear. These are his disciples, and they're struggling with these words. And so it's what's happening is sort of a winnowing effect. Those words are winnowing out those who are accepting over against those who are rejecting. So once he's accepted, you accept his claims as to who he is in his messiahship. Accept who you are. That's, this is the harder part. We can accept him and all the wonderful things that he said and done, all of the great and grand and glorious things that he is. But when he starts talking about us, what happens? Now, that happened then as well. And we have to be careful because we're at a fork in the road. And that fork you could call his winnowing fork. So the acceptance is accepting the claims, not only about who he is, but who I am, who we are fundamentally in our fallen nature. That would express, at least in a humble, convicted moment, of our need for him. That's when the appropriation happens. So acceptance moves into appropriation insofar as that it's a, a claim to exclusively possess something or someone. And that's what we do. He's mine. And then you see those pronouns, the me and mine. You see it on God's half. You see it on Jesus' behalf. You are mine. I've bought you for a very expensive price. You belong to me. And that belonging happens. It's exclusive. He is my savior. That would naturally follow. And then the assimilation should be obvious. It means to, it comes from the word similar. It's to make similar or alike. Well, we need this to, to uh, alliterate, so it's assimilation. Somebody who appropriates Christ, somebody who's accepted him and appropriated him, grabbed him, if you will, and said, you are mine, begins to follow him, doesn't want to be away from him, wants to listen to him, wants to let the uh, the 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 efficacy of its transformational power start to happen. I want to be, not just listen to him and learn theology, I want to be like him. He's winsome. He's got everything that I'm missing. 
That's what I want. So these three words are very important if you understand that fork in the road. If you understand what Jesus is doing as he pitches his word, so to speak, and the tines separate out those who say, I want nothing to do with him. And it's not okay to take parts of what he's saying. We talked about that as well. No, it's all of him or it's none of him. That's, that's what he says. So he wants our hearts. So instead of accepting him, they rejected him. Now they're down the wrong path. Where does that path lead? Well, first it's resisting, and then they're resenting the things he's saying, and then they outright reject it, and then they want to kill him. That's that path. It leads to wanting to kill him. As he said in chapter 5 already, verse 18, they are seeking all the more. That means they'd already begun earlier than that. I want him dead. I want him to shut up. I want him to stop talking. Because when he talks, it, it bothers me. That's what his words do. If it doesn't do the other. If it doesn't, and this, is, as it turns out, is a monumental task. If it doesn't smite the pride of man. If it doesn't crush the arrogance of man. It has to do that, or the rest won't happen. I don't want to possess him. I want to possess me. I want to, I want to appropriate my life, thank you. I don't want his. I don't like what he's saying. We're going to find many ways. They're trying, trying to find a handle to grab a hold of. He won't give them one. He speaks only truth. They can't get him that way. What do they end up having to do? You know the end of the story. They got to lie. They have to lie about him. They have to actually conscript some liars to be at the trial and say things that are not true. And does he bring in a great consigliere, a big advocate on his behalf to defend him? Or does he speak up, oh, no, I'm not having this? What does he do? As a lamb before his shears is mute, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Because of the sovereign plan of God, or none of us would have a chance, a hope for life. Because we wouldn't do it. That's why. This is what they're proving here. This is what they proved all through that 71 verse, massive chapter 6, the bread of life. What's so offensive about that? I have come down from heaven. I am the bread of life that have come down from heaven. And if you consume the bread of life, if you drink of my blood, my blood has life within it, and it will be yours for eternity. Yeah, let's kill him. What? Well, you know, non sequitur. I, I, don't, I don't get. How does that follow? He's offering you eternal life. He's healing you. He's feeding you. For which of my works do you stone me? Well, it's not for a good work. It's because you claim to be like God. Well, it's because I am. But you're all fools. He could, he could have said to them, because you're actually fulfilling the plan, the sovereign plan of God meeting every divine appointment for the fruition of that plan on the spot with precision. 
I'm not going with you to the feast. But he does go. Why? It is not yet my what? Time. Remember the wedding at Cana? Chapter 2, right? Same thing. It is not my time. He says to his mother about the whole wine situation. This is remarkable. They reject him. John 6, 42. They don't, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So they disassociate instead of appropriate. I want nothing to do with him. You can have him. I don't want him. John 6, 66, you remember, and I think it's very appropriate that this is 666, don't you? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Why? Why? What great offense has he made? How dare you speak condemnation into my heart? This is a fortress right here. Who do you think you are? Wow. We're that. Well, I've told you before. We're rascals. We're rascals. So it's deception now instead of assimilation. I don't want to be like him. I want to kill him. So rejecting the words of Christ led these masses of disciples, mathetes, these are followers of Jesus, Previously, not anymore. And you remember from last time, the language is that it was permanent. They no longer walked with him. It had permanency to its intention. Rejection of Jesus Christ is always predicated by the rejection of his words. The rejection of Jesus Christ is always predicated by the rejection of his words. Because when you reject the words of Christ, you've rejected Christ. Plain and simple. That's it. We try to find many ways around that. No, I don't reject Jesus. I just reject what he's saying. He needs to stop talking. Oh, we can argue that, can't we? Let's look at this progression just briefly in this introduction. Verse 7, the world hates me, he said, because I testify about it that its works are evil. That's why it hates me. We've just been given a huge revelation there in verse 7. That's why it hates me, because I came to show, to expose. But did he come to judge? No. You need to understand your condition so you recognize your need for a Christ. If I, re, if I resist those words, those difficult words, to talk about how evil we are so that you will approve of me, so that we can gain big numbers, that would be sinfully remiss of me. Because you might not know how really desperate your situation is. So that's love that spurs him on. Those words are steeped in love, don't you see? I need to know. I needed to know. Coming out of the life 
that I had in New York City in the 80s. I had it to know somebody had to have the guts to speak up to me and say, this is what's wrong with you. I don't say that because I'm your judge. Sometimes people come at you that way, right? How well do you receive it? Not well. No, I care about you, and I'm absolutely stricken with grief that you don't recognize your situation. You are perishing. You're perishing. Wake up. Wake up and listen. There he is in the temple then when he does go down for the feast. In verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began, here he goes again, teaching. See, that's when it happens, folks. Not when he's feeding, not when he's healing. Oh, he's got throngs following him. There could have been as many as 15, 20,000 people, when you count the women and children, following up and around the northern crest of the Sea of Galilee over to Bethsaida to be fed. And, oh, isn't this wonderful? It's great. And then he starts talking. He starts teaching. It is in six verses later in verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Wow. Aren't you still full from the feeding I gave you? Aren't you still well and healthy from? See, those are the ones that shout Barabbas at the end. The ones who benefited from all the things that they enjoyed and approved of. Oh, yeah. We're all about Jesus. But let him open his mouth and speak truth. See what happens. Verse 25, a few verses later, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? <laughs> Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering and these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. For what? For teaching the truth? Who knew their scriptures better than Jesus? Nobody. And I would suggest to you that in their heart of hearts, they knew exactly what that truth meant. But they don't want to hear it anymore. It's a, a most inconvenient truth. <laughs> And then in chapter 8, verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. That's it. We would love it to be some other reason. No, it's the way you are, Jesus. No, no, no. It's just, it's this, it's that. They're going to point to his, the way he is or something about, something else. I don't like the way you dress. I don't like the way you talk. I don't, I don't like the way you live. I don't know what it is. I just don't like you. Bye. Verse 45 to 47, But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. There, there it is. If you belong to God, you'll hear them, even when they're hard to hear. You won't say it's time to go. They did. 
The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's like John says in his first epistle in 2, verse 19, you went out from us, why? Yeah, but you're, you're not of us because if you were of us, that's what he's talking about. You're not of God, so you're not going to hear the words of God. He knew that already. He already knew that. You know, this isn't a new revelation either. It's been like this for a long time. We can find places in the Old Testament. I'll give you one and then some other references. We don't have time to look at all of them, but there's a lot of them. For example, Jeremiah 6.10. To whom shall I speak and give warning? Whom can I speak and give warning? (laughs) Nuthateo. To caution, to warn, to bring to mind. Who can I... Who can I give that to that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. They don't want to hear from me. And in your notes, you can put Nehemiah 9.6. You can put Psalm 50 and verse 7. You can put Isaiah 5. 24, you can put Jeremiah 8, 9. You've cast, the psalmist says, you've, you, you, you hate discipline. You hate it. You hate discipline. And so you've cast my words behind your back. This is pretty bold. This is verse 51 of John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, He will never see death. What's so offensive about that? Just listen to me. You are in a serious quandary in your fallen state. Rejecting the words of Christ is tantamount to rejecting Christ. That's the bottom line. It's the same thing. You can't pick and choose. He is the Word of God. Brother, we started the book that way, didn't we? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's right. So you reject the Word, what? You reject Christ. You can't say, oh, no, no, that's not true. That's not right. No, I'm not going. I'm not signing on for that. We sashay around things so that we can really kind of just live the lives we want to. Because he had a lot to say, my friends. He had a lot to say. And yet we pick and choose what we want to. And even when other voices, well-meaning voices, have come to us at times and said things to us from the Word of God, no, not that. Not that. We start boasting about grace and forgiveness and all of those things. We, oh Lord, have mercy on us. So it's not that his teaching was implausible. It's not that there wasn't enough evidence. It, that's all there. It's not that it, it lacked the truthfulness. It was pure truth coming from him who is the way, the truth, and the life. What was it? His words are rejected, obviously, because of the demands they make on us. I'm not having it. I'm doing this my way. Yet, so many so-called 
Christians in many churches today willfully and repeatedly and deliberately choose not to keep his word. And they do so at times with impunity. It's amazing. Sometimes with brazen impunity and, and you're, you're, you're set back on your heels when you see that. Brother, I, I'm dumbstruck. Help me, because I care about you. So they picked up stones. John eight fifty nine. They picked up stones to throw at him. But he hid himself and went out of the temple. What were you what would you or I have done at that point? They're picking up stones. All you've done is speak the truth, heal them, feed them, care about them, love them, show them the way to eternal life. And they're picking up stones and they're gnashing their teeth like they did with Stephen. I I, I fear to think about what I would do in that case. I wouldn't. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I think I would just say you're on your own. You remember when Paul got tired in Corinth? You remember that? When we went through in Acts 18, when we were going through the book of Acts? And he lost, he lost it. He, I'm done with you. Your blood is on your own hands. I'm done. And he walks out of the synagogue. And, oh, precious Lord. Who shows up? Jesus shows up. Just don't give up. Keep preaching. Keep teaching. I've got many more of my people that need to be saved. Pay no attention. These are lost sheep. This is what lost sheep do, especially when they're wounded. They bite. So there's nothing else that possesses that much polarizing power to cause people to pick up stones when the man has done nothing wrong. Even Pilate confesses that. It's the words. It's his words. It's these words that we look at now in this book, in these 66 books that comprise the full canon of Scripture the eternal, inspired, authoritative word of God. When it comes, you go one way or you go the other. There's no third course. The chaff and the wheat go up in the air, and the wheat stay down, and the chaff blows away. He's got his winnowing fork out. That's what he's doing. Why? Because he's preparing for people, his people, for what's about to come. That's why. He wants us to survive. So a person either is drawn by Jesus' words and obeys them, or he's repelled by them and he ignores them. He shines them on. That's the bottom line. In chapter 12 of John, verse 47 to 50, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. 
The one who rejects me and does not receive my words already has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that this, that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So it's this regenerative activation of the Word of God and the illuminating, powerful work of the Holy Spirit that are at work here through His Word. And it transforms people when they've accepted Him, when they've appropriated Him. He's about the business of assimilation. He's transforming them then. They've been broken. They've been convicted. They understand their utter spiritual bankruptcy and their need for Jesus Christ. And he's transforming them. So Jesus spends two days feeding the 5,000 men, the some 15, 20,000 people over by Bethsaida on the northeast shore of Sea of Galilee, a couple of days there. And he spends six to seven months discipling the handful of men that remained, which places the emphasis then on discipleship. First, I have to winnow out all that really aren't on board. And is it a small number? No, it's many. He's got his 12 that are standing there, and he has to ask them, are you going to leave too? Maybe I'll have the day off here. Where would No, Lord, where would we go? You have the words. You have the words of eternal life. You have the transformational words that I need to hear so that I can assimilate you. I want to be like you. I'm following you. I'm not going anywhere. Peter can get bold, can he? Oh, I'll draw a sword and cut off somebody's ear if I have to. I'll always... And then there he is, denying the Lord at his trial three times and weeping bitterly like a baby. But he wasn't quitting. So Jesus worked with those 12. And whomever else hung on for the full ride, for the not just the acceptance, but all the way through to the assimilation. And that, as it turns out, takes time. Takes a lot of time. I mentioned uh, some things that John MacArthur has said on this issue. And I think it's important to hear from someone else some other time that maybe we would agree we have respect for who's been at it for over half a, half a century because we're confused about these things. We continue to measure success quantifiably. We just, it's difficult not to do that. Here's what he says. This, and what he's referring to with this, is two days with tens of thousands to get to the twelve. This is what he does. Listen. 
This is what God does. God gathers a crowd for the proclamation of the gospel, for the proclamation of the truth, to declare who he is and why he has come. Then God sorts out the true disciples from the false disciples, and then the real work begins of training the true disciples. That's why the Great Commission says, go into all the world and make what? Disciples. Disciples. That means teaching them to observe all whatsoever I have commanded you. And that is a difficult, protracted, long-running, lifelong work. He goes on, this is a very extensive call, no doubt. It's easy to get a crowd. That's the easy part. Lots of ways to get a crowd. And we see that all over. Very difficult to make a disciple. It's hard work. The success of any spiritual enterprise is not the crowd. That's not the measure of success. That's not the measure of anything. It's not how many people show up. It's what kind of people they are. That's a profound statement. Because some are going to show up, and as long as they approve, and as long as it doesn't impinge on what they want their lifestyle to be, they're on board. And when that gets put threatened and put in jeopardy, they're gone. But he's doing that intentionally, is MacArthur's point, and I agree wholeheartedly. He goes on, and where there are in the process, and where they are, rather, in the process of spiritual development. It's what kind of people they are. The Bible doesn't say, get a crowd. See if you can keep them, whether they believe or obey or not. The Bible says, get a crowd, hit them with the words of Jesus, and find out who stays. And whoever stays, make disciples out of them. Amen. That's what ministry is. You may have the same size crowd Jesus did. And I think he was the very best communicator, like the best ever. And he collected people who were superficial. And he made it so clear by his words what they needed to believe. He did that so clearly that he drove them away. And then he poured himself into those who remained. This is what discipleship is. We need depth. My, my, do we need depth. End quote. That takes work. That takes time. That's a challenge to us. Like Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, and you became imitators of us. That's the assimilation. Same root word on that. The assimilation. The, you became in, imitators of us and of the Lord. That's what this process is all about, and it's difficult. It's painstaking. It's gut-rending at times, heart-rending at times, and gut-punching at times. And it challenges just about every facet. It challenges every vestige of anything we ever thought, said, or believed. Everything that we've ever done is under scrutiny. It's under divine scrutiny. He's looking at everything. Why? Because he's preparing you. He wants you to understand the price. He wants to understand the cost. What general would go out to, to war if he hadn't counted the cost? What builder would build a great building if he hadn't count the cost of what it takes to build it? They understood these that walked away. Like I said, the language indicates they, they were gone permanently. Oh, no, enough of this. Wow. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That's why I'm, I'm startled by those who reject the sanctifying work in their life. It gets too difficult, but they want to go tell other people about Jesus. No, people are reading you. They're not listening to you. Why? Because their greatest condemnation for Christians is you are a bunch of what? Hypocrites. Are they wrong? I wish they were. Those who have accepted Jesus and appropriated his righteousness, embraced it. It's his. I have none of my own. I'm not letting go. Then the assimilation starts. The assimilation of his character, the assimilation of his virtues, sovereign timing in the redemptive work of Almighty God. That's what we're seeing here in this passage. Every single thing that Jesus did, from his appearing to everything that he taught, every place he went, was all sovereignly appointed. That's wonderfully providential that we had first hour, that great, great study of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. There are a few that, doctrines that are more important for us to understand. All is on divine, a divinely sovereign timetable. And we can see that even before Christ came along, we see it with the appearing of John the Baptist. In Malachi 3.1, we don't even get to the New Testament yet, where Malachi is saying, God is saying through his prophet, Behold, I send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is indicative. It's absolutely going to happen, but it's going to happen Suddenly, suddenly come. That doesn't mean you're startled by the appearance, although you probably would be, especially given the way he's dressed and what he's eating. But no, it means in a precise time as well. He's going to show up. Where'd he come from? He was out in the wilderness. I don't know. Look at the way he dressed. Don't get near him. Perfect appointment. Precise times. He shows up. And then you're familiar with Galatians 4, 4, right? When Jesus showed up, Paul wrote, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Now after John, this would be John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, Moses, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Ephesians 1, Paul writing, verse 9 and 10, making known to us the, min the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. He created time, as I've said many times. He created time. It's just our context. The clock is ticking for mankind, not for God. So in the fullness of that time, when that clock ticked down to that very second, that very hour, God sent forth his son. Amazing divinity here. 
a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And then Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse 6, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper what? Time. That's right. At the proper time. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. You see, it's all through the New Testament. The time has come of his appearing. And that's what we see when he's telling his brothers, I'm, it isn't time for me to go yet. They don't understand. We don't know if they're, if they're just wise guys, I mean, um, or if they're like, no, we, we'd like to see some of these miracles too. So let's go down together. And do these things publicly. If you really believe in them, why wouldn't you do that in a, in a great audience? Well, he, they don't know the rest of it. Because at this point, the text says, they don't believe him. They don't believe in him. So they don't understand. Even though he's speaking the truth, still speaking the truth that people don't understand. It's not my time. I mean, you can picture them scratching their heads and saying, what are you talking about? It's time for the Passover. Let's go. We do it every... Here, Jesus has never missed. There's three main feast days that all men were to participate in at the temple. Passover, Pentecost, and the, the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths. And that's what's going on here. That's what shows the passage of time, by the way, because there's, there's uh, a difference in time between the Passover, which is Tishri, which is the April time frame, and then the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is in roughly October. So God's timing is perfect. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, as he finishes in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 6. Regarding the day of the Lord, when that's going to come, and the revelation of the Antichrist, he says this in Second Thessalonians verse 3 and verse 6, for that day will not come, it will not come. It's just not going to come unless what? Unless the rebellion comes first, okay? So there's things that have to happen sequentially before any other event will occur. And the man of lawlessness, it's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. And in his time he will be revealed. Verse 1, after this Jesus went about Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And we can see by some of the remarks that they make that they've been, they, they haven't stopped thinking about him. They're still muttering and wondering where he is, where who is where the guy they've probably been talking about for the past year is. Where's Jesus? He always comes to these feast days. Yeah, but isn't he the one that they want to kill? Right? So he's avoiding that. He's avoiding that. After this, so it indicates a passage of time, just like the beginning of chapter 5 did. Verse 1 starts the same way. says, after this. And in chapter 
6 and verse 4, it says it was a Passover at that time. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this was some seven months later or after the Bread of Life discourse that we're seeing now. So for those months, he's been discipling the ones that remained. That's the whole point. Verse 2, now the feast, uh, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, verse 3, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So these are his biological half-brothers, different fathers, obviously. So these are cited, of course, in Matthew 15. These are James, Joseph, uh, Simon and Judas or Jude. So James, the epistle is written by Jesus' half-brother, as is the epistle written by Jude. Those are his, these are two of the ones that are saying these things. At this time, they didn't believe in him. It had to be after the fact that they would end up believing in him, after his works were done. So they're saying, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly, if if you do these things, show yourself to the world. Does that remind you of anybody? Who said that? Satan. Right? Listen, if you're God, turn these rocks into bread. If, if, if. When you see if in there, it jumps off the page. Well, listen, if, you, if this is who you are, if this is what you can do, let's see it. <laughs> Even Jesus was challenged his whole life to fulfill the will of his Father and not show off to Satan or any other man. So verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. So just let me pause here for a minute and just say, if, if you've blamed yourself to, some, to whatever degree, for your family members or loved ones not coming to Christ, you felt guilty because you didn't speak up enough or you didn't pray fervently enough or whatever it would be. Would you remember this verse? This verse 5? He was perfect. All that probably did was annoy his brothers and sisters. Right? Jesus was perfect, and they didn't believe him. If they don't belong to God, it can be Jesus himself that speaks to them, and they won't believe. That's the point. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. My time has not come. You you always have opportunity to do different things, at least from your perspective. But I'm on a divine timetable, and I intend to fully fulfill that timetable. And he was aware of what, that's why he would disappear. And you heard that expression a lot in different ways from Jesus in the Gospels. They were ready to grab him. They're ready to stone him. They're re ready to arrest him. But he disappears. Why? It's not yet my time. That's the point. My time has not yet come. 
Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So again, it wasn't the doctrines that he taught per se. They could leave them in the abstract like some people who just study theology, (laughs) but they don't let it change their life. It's the demands those doctrines made on their lives that they rejected. It'll always be that way. It's that way now. It will always be that way. We like accumulating doctrine. It makes us feel better about ourselves. It makes us feel like we're in charge of our growth when the pitiful thing is we're not really growing because we're not abiding in those words. You are truly my disciples. John eight thirty one. If you abide in my word, that means you are receiving the transformational efficacy through your contrition and your conviction and your confession and seeking me in in repentance and fear. That's why they hated him. It eventually got him executed. You hang around long enough, that's the end of that game. That's the, that's the end of that road. A noose. Stones. And for what? I'll tell you what. For speaking the truth in love. See, we misunderstand. We readjust. We reconfigure what love means. As long as it makes me feel good. As long as it accommodates how I want to live. Because Jesus loves me. That's a a hideous misconception. He loves you enough to tell you what's wrong with you. Who else will? You won't. Our pride is too formidable. Our arrogance is just astronomical. Who are you to tell me? Right? That's us. He's speaking the truth in love, and that love will hang him on a cross. You remember when King, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, was dealing with Ahab, the king of Israel? And Ahab wanted Jehoshaphat to get a, uh, a prophet to prophesy something so he knew what was going to happen. And uh, Jehoshaphat says in 1 Kings 22, 7 and 8, um, is there, so Jehoshaphat's innocently asking Ahab, is there not another prophet of the Lord of whom we may may inquire? And, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then Ahab says, Micaiah, the son of Imla, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. (laughs) So, no. No Micaiah. <laughs> wow. First Peter one, fourteen to nineteen, as obedient children. This is what we don't like to hear, by the way. Because this comes part the main thesis of it comes out of right out of Levit- Leviticus, Peter's quoting Leviticus. As obedient children, we're already starting to rankle. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy. 
you also what? Be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, here it is, you shall be holy for I am holy. He could add, I'm preparing you for a place and you're hanging on to the filth and disgust of the flesh of a fallen, perishing offense to me? Wow. Verse 17, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And yet many of us will act just like him sometimes, won't we? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, they may have tolerated him if he hadn't exposed their wicked hearts. What did you do that for, Jesus? Why did you do that? Don't you want them to like you? Isn't, isn't that what we should be doing here? We want people to hear the gospel, don't we? Quit saying things we don't like hearing. Quit speaking of the wickedness of mankind. Stop talking about that. This is real easy. When you were feeding and healing, look at, we had a huge church. It was massive. It was cool. We all loved you. No, you hated him. Because you despised his words and you're going to kill him. And that's what's in the heart of man. When they spurn his words and toss them behind their backs. I like what J.C. Ryle says here. So we're bringing this in for a landing. True Christians must never be surprised if they are hated, quote unquote, like their Lord. Let us note that unpopularity among men is no proof that a Christian is wrong, either in faith or practice. The common notion of many that it is a good sign of a person's character to be well spoken of by everybody is a great error. When we see how our Lord was regarded by the wicked and worldly of his day, we may well conclude that it is a very poor compliment to be told that we are liked by everybody. There can surely be very little quote-unquote witness about our lives if even the wicked like us, friends of the world, cavorting with the world, hobnobbing with the world, Wow. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. Luke 6.26. Ryle says, that sentence is too much forgotten. End quote. Surely we ought to hold ourselves suspect as witnesses or so-called of Jesus Christ when we're so well thought of by many people, how many likes we have on our Facebook account, how many friends we have. Friends are are easy to make. All you have to do is just compromise a little bit. Just be quiet. Jesus, that's all we want from you. That's all we wanted. 
Just be quiet. Please. Or we can get really ugly. Do not underestimate the capability of the heart of fallen man. Verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going, for my time has not fully come. He's not telling them that he's not going. He's just saying, not now. Verse 9, after this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but privately. You'd think that he'd make a big show of it, like his brothers recommended. They typically go around Samaria. You remember that, right? You're along the Phoenician coast or over by the, the Jordan River, but they want to get around Samaria. We're not going in that. They hated it. They hated the people. They didn't even want to touch the dirt. He went right through it privately. No big show. That's not what it's all about. Big, trendy show. What are the people like? Let's hear it. What are the people like? Big band, programs, popularity, charisma. But dial it down on the hard sayings. Or, bye. That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but privately. So he traveled down. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man, others said he is leading the people astray. They're muttering, they're murmuring. This word generally implies an undercurrent of discontent or dislike. Where is he? And isn't this the guy that they're going to arrest? So the more and more over time that this truth is spoken, the more unhappy the people become. It had been some years since he had been there. Over time, they keep talking about it. And as they keep talking about it behind the scenes, it just festers more and more contempt. It grows its own legs. It becomes this ugly little entity. Where is he? I can't wait till he comes here. And according to Joe, he, Joe now actually it was Jewish historical record, that group grew greater and greater and greater. Not the ones who said he was a good man. He was a good man because it hasn't affected my life yet. I've lasted here for, you know, I've followed him for years, you know, feeding, healing. He said some things that I could nod and say amen to. And that group grew smaller and smaller. And the group that just muttered to themselves, behind the scenes and grumbled about him grew bigger and bigger and bigger until they finally killed him and they were he was no longer saying things that they accepted or they approved of his words were indicting them personally with specificity mind you 
Instead of responding with remorse and conviction of their sin, they resisted, resented, and rejected him. Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. That's always in there, by the way, because there's a weakness to this kind of, this kind of thing, this, this muttering and murmuring, this kind of slander. It's a weakness. So there's always fear there, fear of the Jews. So this is a well-established legalistic system that has that kind of power on them. We're afraid. We're afraid to go along with anybody else because it's not what's approved of by the crowd that's really talking about arresting him. He needs to be arrested, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he needs to be arrested. He needs to be taken down, right? Careful, somebody might hear us. Nevertheless, let's just keep talking about it. J.C. Rowell says this, and then we pray. The fear of man is a powerful principle among most people. That's the truth, folks. Rulers have little idea how many things are secretly talked of sometimes among subjects and kept back from them. God have mercy. That's all I have to say. God have mercy. Father, thank you for this. I thank you, O Lord, as I beg for mercy for these things that resonate with us today. This isn't meant to be kept in the dusty history books. This is perfectly pertinent to our lives because it's your eternal inspired word. It will always speak to every age. There's, there's nothing uncommon happening to us that wasn't common to all men through the ages. For we're contending with the same nemesis, the pride of man, the wicked heart of man. Oh Lord, Help us in the quietness of our hearts to be convicted over these things as you've pierced our hearts and made us aware of them. Forgive us, O Lord. Forgive us. I pray that we would have convicted hearts filled with contrition, knowing that this sovereign God had appointed this time to yet once again Remind us of these great truths. So, Lord, don't give up on us. Thank you for the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who confess these things, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the shed blood that now becomes our lifeblood for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.